Welcome to We're All Gonna Die and Other Fun Facts, a semi-regular, occasionally amusing, and rarely funny series of conversations on a random topic. And this episode is a special episode. This is episode number 100. And for episode one, number 100, I guess I could have done a cheesy clip show of the best bottom five answers or some sort of nar- narcissistic retrospective. But instead, I took, I think, the better option. And uh, this episode is entitled Ghost Mother. And it's about Valerie, Valerie Bacharach's new book, Ghost Mother. And our guest for this episode is someone who knows something about Ghost Mother and Valerie Bacharach. Actually, Valerie Bacharach, thank you for coming and being and uh, dealing with my being late to a virtual Zoom podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it was fine being late. I was I was uh, just sitting around uh, reading the dregs of the New York Times. Maybe I shouldn't say dregs, the leftover things I hadn't read from the New York Times. Well, that's OK. The, the, the New York <laughs> Times is allowed to have dregs. They are. <laughs> and I always say my, because I have one probably sitting out in a puddles in front of my house right now, too. Right. Um, my relationship with the New York Times is, was forever changed when I read in a book that there is, a, it was, is an Italian sociologist who has made the argument that if you were up until about the 17th or 18th century, an intelligent, aware, maybe elitely intelligent person, mm-hmm. the amount of information you really needed to know in a lifetime was roughly the equivalent amount of information that's in a Sunday New York Times. <laughs> well, there you go. So and so you're good to go, right? <laughs> yes, except now they make that amount of information every week. True. And so that there's also to think like that's a completely different headspace to live in. And that's a completely different sense of consciousness. And so now whenever I get that lump, I mean, yes, you got to you got to separate the wheat from the chaff in there. But also, what is it doing to us (laughs) that we yes. And that we've we've doubled the the same sociologist has argued that since 1980 or from about 1980 to I think 2010 was when this this research was done. We doubled the sum total of all human knowledge. I'm not sure exactly what to think about that. I yeah. So yeah. So have just, we stopped learning, or <laughs> we can't stop learning? But then maybe do we have to change our relationship to information and problematize it? So yes, I have a very problematic now relationship with that Sunday New York Times and also last week's Sunday New York Times, which might still be in the bag in my living room because well I'm I'm gonna I'm now I'm gonna be thinking about the Sunday New York Times differently for the rest of my life. Yeah so, no sorry I, I had to spread that, that but <laughs> I had to spread that but I think that's an important you know and for me as someone who works in professory world um what does it mean to try to make educated people when the sum total of human knowledge has doubled in my lifetime and is probably getting on its way to a tripling very soon. And, you know, people keep writing more books too. Yes, they do. Yes. Which was why we're here. (laughs) How's that for transition back? (laughs) Not to trash the times. (laughs) Not to trash the times, not to trash knowledge, not to trash college and not to trash books. Because we're here to talk about a book, right. your your new book, Ghost Mother, which I don't know if you want to speak to maybe actually maybe a little bit about yourself. The New York Times thing was a diversion. A little bit about yourself and and what this book is is about. Um. So I actually came to poetry about nine years ago. Oh um, wow. I had always been a reader. I had never been a writer. Really? And really. And um, my, my younger son died uh, a couple of years before that from opioid addiction. And uh, in trying to figure out how to stay alive, um, I started writing um, very, very badly, I might add, at the beginning. Um, 
And, but I started really loving the idea of it. Um, and I, I Googled writing classes for poetry. And the first thing that popped up was through Carlo University, Mad Women in the Attic workshops. Really? And that was the top of the list. So for me, number one, I mean, for a woman who wouldn't want to be a mad woman. So I was, I was super intrigued. And um, the, I started coming in and taking classes, uh, workshops. Very first uh, workshop um, teacher I had was Jan Beatty, who is wow. a spectacular poet and uh, also nonfiction writer. And um, I really credit, you know, I've worked with her, with Nancy Kragowski, with Joey Katz, and I really credit not only them, but the women I have met and become friends with is really helping me um, find my voice, you know? Um, and then I actually also went back to school for my master's through Carlo, through their MFA program, and also worked with um, Jerry LaFemina, Jean O'Brien in Ireland, Leanne Rorapa and Judith Vollmer. Um, so I've worked with some phenomenal uh, teachers and mentors. Um, and in during all of this time, my father, uh, was aging and in very ill health. My parents are divorced. Uh, were, well, they're both dead now. My mother was living in Columbus and she and I were always very close and she had a stroke and ended up moving to Pittsburgh and had a second stroke. And the last couple of years of her life and mine uh, were very, very difficult. Um, and working on these poems about my mom kind of, not kind of, it did help me put some things in perspective and hopefully be able to remember her, not just from when I was younger and she was healthy, but remember her with some compassion because she was very, very angry. Um, when she had these strokes, uh, there was still enough of her knowledge left that she knew exactly what she was losing. Um, and my mother was very independent. So that was very difficult for her. Wow, that's, that's, there's a lot I wanna unpack there. Um, <laughs> I, and I'm just gonna go in order or I'm gonna try to go in order. These conversations always, a hundred podcasts in, they, they always drift and float and whatever. And I, no <laughs> yes. Um, so I guess the first thing is I, I think for, and I see this happening with young people, that the young people I work with and the middle-aged people I'm friends with or my contemporaries about not wanting to take on a new creative endeavor or taking on a new creative form because there's this, oh, it's going to take a lifetime. And so I'm always so impressed in our poetry group, The Edgers, um, by your poetry, the way that you work with form is so stunning. I mean, I feel like I, you know, have this fear sometimes, like, oh, it's just prose with line breaks. That's what I'm doing. Oh, no, you know. And, and it, you know, and my, my poetry looks on a page like, you know, the staccato of a jackhammer most of the time and the way that your words just fill the space and float through the space and, and the sense of time and voice and all of that is always so impressive. Thank you. And so I'm genuinely shocked that you've only been writing poetry for nine years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as far as like, what is it, what was the impetus to finally say, because again, I just, I know so many people who I, I remember I remember being 23 talking to my best friend who was still a musician mm -hmm. who said, I haven't made it by now. Right. I haven't made it by now. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't got, he didn't get the major label deal. He still hasn't got the major label deal. Um, and I just remember like just that, I don't know, crushing 
way to, I don't know if that's irony. I don't know if that's what. So what was it that was final? I was like, no, I'm going to make this leap. And also to then, I always invoke this on the podcast, my painting, my fine arts professor, Chuck Olson, the idea of the hell stage. The hell stage? The hell stage, which oh. for him is the stage when, and for him, it's a part of a creative cycle and to grow and evolve as an artist that you have to go through the stage where you do things and nothing works. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, just awful. Definitely. Yeah. And we all start at the hell stage, especially if we're already a sophisticated reader. You know, I've, I've also done those workshop things and workshop classes where it's also, you know, that the students haven't actually read poetry, but they're writing poetry, right. which is almost maybe liberating, like, because you don't know what people have done. You are already then a sophisticated reader. Well, I became a better reader. You became, became a better reader, but you all, you had read poems before you started writing poems. I had. And you had I been had. impressed by poems. I had, yeah. And what does it mean, or, or what was that space for you to punch through that? Because I think that is that is the Red Rider BB gun block stop sign that no one runs. You know, I think that I had to somehow figure out how to deal with a terrible loss, a yeah. terrible loss. And I had to figure out a way to, to and I am not trying to be dramatic here, um, to stay alive. Mm, and... God. You know, I, I found that the physical act, because when I write, I write with a pen and paper before I type things up. Okay. I, so, so for me, it's, it's why I like reading actual books more than I like reading online. I do read online, but I like the, the heft of a book. I like to hold a pen. I like a nice little notebook. Mm. <laughs> and um, that physical act of seeing these words and then the health stage you talk about, um, truthfully, is kind of always there, right? Yeah. Like you write, you write, and, and I think, oh, man, this is fabulous. This is going somewhere. And I've got two lines, and then I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. This mm. is so not working. Um, so it, 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 uh, there was something about physically doing something mm. that was very helpful to me. Um, there was also something very nurturing about, for me, being in these, in these workshops mm. because people were, were, were very honest, but were very supportive also and very encouraging. Yeah. And um, I, the first poem I ever had published was one I wrote in Jan Beatty's workshop. Really? The very first poem, yeah. Um, and, it, and it's also a poem that's in my, my first chapbook, Fireweed, which are poems pretty much about, about my son. Mm. Um, so, so um, but I also, to speak to what you said about younger people, I believe you have to be a reader in order to become a better right writer. Yeah. You have to you have to be exposed and you don't have to like everything you read. Mm -hmm. You know, but you can still learn from it. You know, and I I remember in my first semester in the MFA at Carlo, I was working with Jerry LaFemina and I read a, a book of poems and I honestly don't remember who the poet was, I remember I didn't like it, like mm. the, the poems at all. I didn't like the book. And I was very quick to say that to Jerry. And he just looked at me and said, you need to go back. You need to reread that book. You need to really look at the craft and how the writer has done what she has done. Mm. Like, don't be so quick there, Toots, to <laughs> you know, write this woman off. <laughs> and he was right. So I still don't particularly like those poems, mm. but that doesn't matter. I could see how she broke a line. I mm. could see how she used metaphor or, or description or, you know, what it, whatever it might have been. Yeah, which I'm, is, I'm, go ahead. you know, which is a different kind of reading. It is. 
It also mm-hmm. reminds me, I just got my first email about my spring book orders, mm-hmm. my class <laughs> yesterday or something. Like, oh, it's too soon <laughs> to make them. But yeah, and, and I think that's true. It's like to read for craft is a very different, very different, very different animal. Right. Right. And I think, I think there has to be a merging of the two. Yeah. So, so I've read some poets who have played around amazingly with lines and space, mm-hmm. which is where I thought, well, this is so super cool. Um, I've read Kathleen Graber, Kamiko Han, Arthur says, I'm probably saying his last name wrong, S-Z-E, has um, a lot of poetry with very long lines. And they, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me to see that. So some of my experimentation also is based on, oh, I read someone else who did this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also then, you know, speaking to, well, actually it's not, uh, the other thing I want to say to respond to what, um, it's not that being dramatic talking about poetry and survival. Yeah. Um, I know at least in the case of, you know, adults who lose their children, I know in the case of say a, a ch- when a child, an adult child is murdered, the parent, I think they said the life expectancy for the parent is like 50, 50, whether the parent survives the following year. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's, that's very real. And I think that's yeah. very, you know, you're talking about forming the, the, the words on a page, this, this necessity for symbolic order, this right. necessity for um, just that it, it is that existential question of what it means. Well, what I, an experience and means. I, I think some kind of order, some kind of uh, potential control mm. over the chaos of a death Um, You know, uh, a friend sent me a book right after my my son Nathan died called Elegy by Mary Jo Bang. And she had lost a son to an accidental overdose. And I read those and I was like, oh, my God. You know, I'm sure I didn't even really grasp Mm. what I was reading that much. But, um, you know, again, the more I started reading and looking at how people wrote about grief, um, I thought, all right, this is going to be an avenue for me to deal with this. Which, uh, you know, many years ago, I saw this great paper at MLA where someone had done research on bereavement blogs parents who lost children and then looked at apparently i guess in the 70s there was a brief moment where where books creative nonfiction books by parents who had lost children were really popular mm-hmm. and what they came to was this this idea that you know there's a difference between narratology and implotment and that online writing is about implotment. It's about, I can't even today in this very emotionally pregnant, immediate moment that you can type it in, hit send, and it is out into the world. Right. Whereas maybe physical writing, writing books, there is this other call that this, this better have a bigger meaning and that the author has to get to that larger sense of meaning. Right, right. And one is not necessarily better than the other. I mean, at all. I think I think books are better. I will say. I will say. I think that I can, and the person who presented this paper didn't want to make that leap. But I think coming out of that, I think it, you know, I about what our culture is now and what our online culture is now. Well, true. That every true. moment is horrible, <laughs> and that there's never. I mean, I'm, I'm of the belief, you know, I can say it's 20 years on. I, I still don't think we know what 9-11 meant. Oh. Yeah. Or what that yeah. was. I guarantee you for the families who lost someone, they're still grappling with that. You, yeah. you, don't, you don't get over losing yeah. someone. Um, yeah. I mean, there is that, that empty space that is just a part of who you are. And for me, when, when I was working on these poems about my mom, 
I, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking in terms of a book at that point. Mm-hmm. It was just, I had to figure out who this woman had been, who she had become because of illness and how I was going to kind of come to terms with all of that. Um, and I, I kind of was just compelled to keep writing about her. I mean, um, because I was, I, I have a, a younger brother who lives in North Carolina and my father had moved there. We kind of joked that he got custody of my dad and I got custody of my mom. Um, so I really wasn't taking care of my dad the way I was taking care of my mom. Um, so. Which I think is a good transition. I do want to come back to talk about community and the necessity of community, but I think it's a great transition to talk about this book. Okay. And maybe, uh, yeah, this process, these pieces, this, this way that this book for me is also about processing memory and making sense of yeah. memory. And in a way, it's a memorial. And in a way, it is not. And I, and I think it's also fascinating what you said earlier, too, about remembering not just because that's the thing right in obituaries you go to the paper and 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 every 80 year old who dies is 30 in their picture right right right, you know and and we tend to try to block that much out you know so much out of experience and about of life that it becomes sort of old age becomes shocking and so to hold on to those memories too and make sense of those memories right is I think a really fascinating part of this book. And and memory is so porous, right? Yeah. It's 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 like I think this is what happened. I think this is what X person said to me. Um and and so you're for me, writing is a way to kind of grab all these, you know, threads and stitch them together in mm some some way so maybe i have to get a sense i there's there's four or five poems we want to read could you could maybe we read like one or two and then talk and then read some more later is that is that all right and absolutely absolutely i just happen to have you know the book sitting here and me I too me too so i'm going to read along so the the cover is an actual photo of me and my mother. Oh, wow. And uh, I knew I wanted this for the cover of the book. And uh, I, I do want to give a shout out to Finishing Line Press because they did a great job with uh, with doing that. So, And that's also uh, some great mid-century drapes. Aren't they? Mid-century yes. modern drapes in the background. Yep, yep. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I... I want to read the very first poem in the book called A Bronx Girl. And I just, so I just have to say, my mother was born and grew up in the Bronx. And I didn't realize how much she associated that until uh, several, well, probably 10 years ago, my husband and I were in New York and we were walking across the Brooklyn Bridge and I called my mother and I said, mom, guess what? I'm on the Brooklyn Bridge. And she said, what do I care? I'm from the Bronx. So (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. I knew you were one from one of the B boroughs, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and so this poem really is about my mother as, as a, when she was a little girl with her grandmother who she adored and she would go and spend time with her and spend the night. So this is, is thinking if I'm talking to my mother in the, in the afterlife. Um, so a Bronx girl. Suppose I say summer, draw a map of the Bronx send it to you. Would you remember your grandmother's home? Three concrete steps rose to the front door, its gilt handle warmed by spring. Your sandaled feet skipped up and down, her laugh a kaleidoscope of fireflies. 
Do you remember her bed? It's quilt of birch leaves and poppies, so real you could hear them grow. The same quilt she dragged from the Pale of Settlement all the way to Stebbins Avenue. Yellowing at the edges, it held the scent of comfort. Can you recall the taste of her bread? Dark and heavy with cocoa and caraway, sliced thickly, drizzled with honey, placed on a cream-colored plate. And the china cup, lone survivor of a lost set of dishes, translucent, pale with roses, it sat beside your small body, held a tea of amber and spice. If this childish map should reach your hands, could you follow its winding streets? Unmoor your heart from winter's breath, open fog-dark eyes to find her door. Give your mouth to the music of her name. That is a great first poem. Yeah, I just, yeah, she, she had a, she had a, uh, a hard life in some ways growing up. And um, I, I remember her so often talking about this grandmother. Um, in fact, her, the grandmother's name was Vera, which is who I'm named for, Valerie. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Now that you think about it. Wow. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Um, do you want me to? Yeah, I want one more, one more, though I'm still processing. But let's read one more. Give me time to think here. Okay. I'm a little overwhelmed. So I, I, I want to read um, one called At the Grocery Store with My Mother After the Second Stroke. Um, and, and she was living here in Pittsburgh then and was still able to get out a little bit. Her eyes faded to watery cream, stare bewildered by apples and grapes, red peppers and broccoli. I push the cart, she pushes her walker, our progress unsteady, painful. I murmur suggestions, maybe soup, maybe potatoes. She stops before a counter filled with, chick with roast chicken, turkey, snow peas with tomatoes. Her weak right hand shivers in mid-reach, cannot decide. She has no appetite, doesn't remember the taste of food. I want to lift her tenuous body into the cart, sing a lullaby into her ear, break open a package of cookies like I used to do when my boys were very young. Search behind bags of flour, inside the cartons of eggs, beneath the leaves of lettuce. Find the fallen pieces of her life, attach them to her body, a jigsaw of a mother reassembled. Okay, so I've recovered. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and to talk about for me too, it's what I find compelling in this book or the, what I think is a compelling tension in this book is, yeah, this question of, you know, uh, memory is fluid. Memory is also linked to our identity, our sense of ourselves. Right. And then to think of our sense of other people. Right. And, uh, we live in the present, we live in modernity. So we are always constantly reminded that the past is very different from the present and the future will be even more different. Right. And thinking about that, what that does to then our, our thoughts about not only who we are, but then the dignity and worth and experience of other people. And as those things pass, those things We want to hold on to them, right. but we know that in, in certain ways they do sift away. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, stroke is a terrible thing. Yeah. It's so messed up my mother's brain. My, I mean, my mother, um, yeah. 
she she lost the ability to really concentrate. She had always been a big reader and reading became hard for her. Her voice was a little slurry. And while I could understand her perfectly, she hated the way she sounded. Um, she became so angry and so focused in that she, I think, honestly lost the ability to to be aware of other people. I don't mean be aware of them physically being there, but be aware of them and how they might be feeling. And um, uh, she was she had been a very successful real estate agent in Columbus. She had been the first woman president of the board of realtors in Columbus, oh. Ohio. Um, and then when all of this happened, I mean, she had other health issues too, but. Yeah. It, it took that away from her and she was very dependent and she hated it. She hated it. And unfortunately, I'm sure a lot of people who do care for parents as they age, um, she became very angry at me. Um, yeah. and, and that was very hard um, for me. Um, Sure. Even 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 while intellectually I understood it, yeah. You know, emotionally, it was very very difficult. Yeah, I've a I've a good friend who this summer lost her mother to dementia, mm -hmm. and well, in a way, she lost her mother to dementia years ago. Right. And it was actually it's been this thing of her trying to like when was when did it begin? Right. Right. But I mean, she would, and she she had to move for her mother. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would just get the random text message, you know, this angry zombie replaced my mom. Yeah. I already lost my mom, but I got the replacement was this angry zombie. Yeah. Yeah. Person. Yeah. Yeah. A anger, anger. I think, be I think there's still a part of people who know just what they don't have anymore. I mean, I'd be angry too, you know? So yeah. like I, said, I, I get that. And it was easier when my mother was able to move to Pittsburgh because when she had her first trip, I was driving back and forth between here and Columbus, like every like, 10 days. Wow. That, and that drive is interminable. <laughs> it, it's pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> it's pretty boring. Police um, infested. Yeah. You know, so, um, and, and, you know, she moved here when she was, oh, I want to say 84. Oh, she wow. died when she was 86. So moving at that late an age to a completely different place where you don't know anyone and nothing is familiar um, was incredibly difficult for her and for me. Um, sure. So, and she had a real fear of growing old. Yeah. She was petrified of the whole idea and she denied it um, and denied things happening to her body, which only led to, you know, more complications. So. Wow. And for, yeah, the brain, I mean, uh, you know, for me, yeah, it is this thought of, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about um, Douglas Copeland's biography of Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. And McLuhan actually had a very, he also died of stroke. He also did not, was unable to speak the last few years of his life because of it. Yeah. But he also had a very rare genetic mutation in that he had two arteries going to his brain, two main arteries going to his brain. Oh, Most okay. people only have one. And, um, you know, Copeland gets into this whole thing of like personal experiences and the biological and how is it that because McLuhan had all this extra oxygen in his head, was he able to be the brilliant and comprehensible genius that he was or that he climbed mountains? But, you know, it, that biography really gets into these questions of personal experience, the biological, you know, one of the things he says about creative genius is that it's a sum total of maybe, yeah, the bio biological, but also the million things that happen to a person in, the, in their lives. Right. And that, you know, he, he says, you know, scientific genius is different, 
the theory of relativity was always going to be there. Did Einstein get there 50 years before anybody else? Mm -hmm. But creative genius, if that person doesn't have those experiences, doesn't live at that moment, that creative genius might not ever happen. Right. Right. If one of those million invisible things is different. Right. Right. But, it, but you know, it's, it's also easy, I think, to second guess, which I spent a lot of time doing. If only I had done this. And why didn't I understand more? And, yeah. you know, it becomes a, a, a self-fulfilling cycle that you just get yourself trapped on. And I was only remembering what I hadn't done. And mm. you know, my husband and my and my son Jacob would say, "You did everything you could." You know, my mother's yeah. default word in those last couple of years was "no, no." <laughs> so, um, yeah. But I, but in this book, I wanted to also capture that love we had for each other, and I want people to see her with compassion, yeah. not just as this, you know woman she became because of, you know, she had high blood pressure, she had a pacemaker, her kidneys were free. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on in her body, um, so. Which actually, could I, could I disrupt the script? Sure. And could we go to page three and could you read Mahjong? Yeah. So, I'll just tell you that when I was a little girl, we lived in these apartments in Columbus and a lot of very young Jewish families lived there. And so once a week, my mother and her friends would get together and play Mahjong. And it's these beautiful, either ceramic or ivory tiles. And I was fascinated and my, I learned to play. And when I would go to visit my mom before she had these strokes, um, just the two of us would play, which is kind of a, you need four people, but we yeah. still have fun. So, all right, Mahjong. My mother and I play Mahjong, ivory tiles on wooden holders, study the cards with their array of hands, determine the best one. Before stroke, before cane, walker, wheelchair, before a disobedient right hand, a recalcitrant right leg, before insidious cells plot to alter heartbeat, attack kidneys, froth the blood in her brain, make it bleed. The tiles are cool to the touch, scarlet and lilac flowers, dragons swirled with green and gold, black dots and dashes. My mother and I play mahjong as sun stripes white walls, glances off the ripe red of tulips in a vase. She smiles at me, happy to be sitting with her daughter, the click clack of tiles exuberant on this May afternoon. She is so lovely, eyes unclouded, hair the auburn of her youth, gold chains perfectly draped, her nails a deep dark plum. Oh. And I, I, and yeah, so I wanted, wanted you to read that. Cause I think that the other thing that I think is another thing I say, not the other, like there's only one other, but the, <laughs> another fascinating thing I find about this book is the way that it does strike this balance of memory in all of the different ways in which a person can be remembered. Right. Right. And how within that poem, there is the perspective of time. Right. You know, you lived that moment and didn't know what that moment meant until this sort of recursive moment of realizing, you know, who that person became and yeah. Yeah. And where yeah. they went. And where they went. And I think it's, I think there has to be a way to still remember, but not just what was bad. Yeah. Not just 
what was tragic. Yeah. And there has to be a way to find um, beauty in the world. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, otherwise, I don't know how you, I don't know how you live. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes. Yeah. And to remember, I, I, I think that that for me is this. Uh, keep thinking about it as like, what does it mean to. How do we make sense of where does our lives, where do our lives go? I mean, that, that I guess is what I'm really getting at is where do our lives go? Where do our lives go? Yeah. And, and I think part of that are choices that we make on how we want to live our lives. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and being Jewish, we are supposed to remember. Remembering yeah. is a huge part of yeah. Judaism. And so on the anniversary of a death, we light a yard site candle, a memorial candle. You know, we recite the mourner's Kaddish, which is really not a mournful prayer, but a prayer of praising God. Yeah. Um, so, so remembering, and again, memory is so fragmented. Everything, yeah. I mean, I, I think. So it's like, I remember this and I'm gonna just, with, a, with writing, not everything has, this is, this is not by, you know, met biography. This is mm -hmm. my sense of what I remember in all its inaccuracies. Mm. Mm. And I think there's also something to be said too, you know, it's not only how we live our lives, but the ways in which perhaps we don't, I mean, the things that we are not in control of. Right. And right. which is that, that, that whole, I mean, again, we try, I think, to push aging and death and all of that so far to the peripheral. Uh, one of the priests uh, on campus, one thing he said to me that I'll never forget, we were actually, we were talking about my research and this came up and I still, I, I need to get this story into something. Um, where he said, you know, it's funny. He's, it's funny you should say that because the thing that changed most, I mean, the guy just celebrated his 80th birthday this semester. Uh -huh. And he said when he first started being a priest and dealing with death, he said, you know, there was, you know, when an 18-year-old dies, it's sudden, it's traumatic, it's shocking. It's that, that outpouring of grief is utterly explosive. Mm -hmm. And when Aunt Edna passes away at 98, who's been homebound for a couple of years who can't see out of one eye and she passes away. I mean, that's, there's still a sadness there, but it's different, but it's different. And what he said was, is in his, his time of, you know, you know, now what's 60 years doing that work. He said that the two have merged that aunt Edna dying at 98 is how could this have happened? Who knew this was going to happen? Then the, the the grief is about shock and the grief is about immediacy, which I think is, again, maybe another way that the modern world has not prepared us very well, well for dealing you know, with the problems of being human. Well, I think that's true. And, and I think what he said is also true. Even, even when you know someone is ill and that this is coming, there is still that, I can't believe this happened. Yeah. When you talk about the idea of control, Mm -hmm. I, when, when my son died, I realized then I had absolutely no control mm. over things. I mean, I could pick what I wanted to eat for dinner. I'm not talking, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but uh, I don't know how long I'm going to live, yeah. you know, uh, none of us know. And so for me, and for my husband and for, for our other son, the idea of, um, and, and we lost my mother-in-law just a couple of years ago. She was 95, you know, one of these mm -hmm. people who had this phenomenal life and, and it was wonderful and it was still very sad and very like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So I think we've all made the, this choice to, to honor not only our son, but our parents 
to live as fully as we can. And, And that I think honors them more than, you know, beating our breast and wearing ashes or something. Yeah. I mean, and I'm only speaking very personally. I'm not yeah. telling anybody else how they're supposed to deal with things. No, and I, and I think that makes that makes a lot of, again, a lot of sense. I, I even think about my own when um, they took the breathing tube out of my father. I was just like, well, if he just learns to swallow again, he can get himself out of this. Right. You know what I mean? It was just so blatantly yeah. obvious. And I was the one who had to sign the DNR. Yeah. You know, and yeah. but you still have that. I mean, we have that also terminal American affliction of being bright sided about right. everything. Right. Right. You know, I, 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 I have a photo on my desk of my mother um, when she was happy and healthy and beautiful. And, and I, I want to, I do, you know, when you said about obituaries of an 85 year old and it's when he was 30, but there is something comforting to remember her that way. It doesn't take away the other, but um, to remember her like that. And um, because I miss her, I I miss her every day. You know, I miss my dad. I miss my son. I mean, it's, they're always with me in some ways, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just wish they were here in the corporal world. (laughs) Yeah. So. This might be about the book, but this is a question I've been thinking about in my own process or my own life is thinking about like what my parents' life was like at my age. Um, and how the world felt and what the world was yeah, yeah, and what they expected out of their lives as opposed to what I expect out of my life. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that one. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, it was actually when it, when it hit me was realizing when I was 39, my dad was 39 when the Stooges album Funhouse came out <laughs> and there was no way he could have dug that album at 39. Right. <laughs> like right. He, right. It took him into his 70s, no, 60s, late 60s to get the Beatles. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, you know what yeah. I mean? So Stooges Funhouse was not. Not, not, I, not on his radar. <laughs> not on his radar. Not not acceptable, which I think right. is, you know, the difference between us. But then I also think uh, I, I mentioned this in class the other day because I'm teaching this graphic novels course about the 21st century graphic novel and maybe. Right the second paper project is very much rooted in how are these stories a product of the era that you are living through that is your life. Cause they, they were born in 2002 and 2003. They have completely yeah. 20th, 21st century lives. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's um, a totally different thing. Right. And I, and I say, you know, it was like when my father was my age, it was 1974 and he had a very, probably had a very good idea what the world will look like 20 years from now. Yeah. And I don't think anybody has that. Not anymore. Not anymore, which is also a very different way of thinking about. I have the same corporeality that my parent had. Yeah. But I'm living at a different time point. Right. Right. Everything's different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I, I wrote a poem that's that's in a manuscript, a full length manuscript. Um, and, and the end is talking about with what's been going on, like in, you know, in the last year with COVID, how my parents mm-hmm. survived things like the Great Depression. And, and I mean, the original yeah. one and, yeah. and World War II and Korea and all of these other things. And now this and I and I, I think I ended with the line like, I'm glad they're dead. And I mean, and not not here dealing with this, you know, because it would have terrified them. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have two more. Can we do what remains and praise in that order? And then we'll, we'll, we'll slide on over to the bottom five. Okay. That, that's the one I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> well, the future. <laughs> the future is going to happen whether we want it to or not, I guess. Okay, very true. So 
Um, what remains is is really a list poem, and it's a little more prosy. Um, and I read I've read some other poets that have written some almost cataloging poems, so that kind of gave me the idea. Mm. And and I I have this all her jewelry in a in a drawer that I just can't really deal with. But anyway, you work with form so well, huh? You work with form and adapt and adapting and experimenting with different forms so well. I love playing with form. I, I love he hate you for it and your ability to do <laughs> it, but I'm over it. Okay, well, I'm glad. What remains a catalog of my mother's jewelry? One, she kept the necklace I gave her as a child, my father with me as I stood before the jewelry counter. Rounded beads the color of the Caribbean, like melted turquoise. Two, I have her jewelry, a heavy necklace, three strands of pearls, not real ones, with a pendant of black and silver. When I lift it in my hands, I smell the scent of her perfume. Three, I spend an hour online looking up perfumes, trying to remember the one she wore. Four, a rope of gold chain knotted in the middle with the ends hang thick against the dress my mother wore at my wedding. In the photos, she looks so vibrant. Five, my mother wore big geometric clip earrings. Most are black, gold, silver, hard edged. One pair though is a brushed steel color, rounded with a dip in the middle. They are soft, cool to the touch. In front of the, six, sorry. In front of the mirror, I try on a pair of her earrings, thick gold squares, heavy on my lobes. And there she is, merge somehow with me. We are palimpset over palimpset. Seven, another necklace. The colors, a mix of jasper and carnelian, beads pebble-sized, growing larger as the strand continues until they meet in the middle, one bead the size of a robin's egg. I slip it over my head, cool on the back of my neck, heavy, pulling me toward the earth. Eight, small silver links hold a rectangle imprinted with letters tiny, made for a baby's wrist, the name almost worn away as if from the stroke of my mother's hand, my, my brother's name, Michael. Nine, decades ago, my mother gave me a pearl necklace, a real one, not an heirloom, but a gift from her ex-husband, the second one, too small, too delicate for her. I wear it on Yom Kippur, twist it in my hands as I chant Mourner's Cottage. 10, Chanel, her perfume was Chanel. And I will read Praise, um, uh, which is based on an actual incident of a red-tailed hawk slamming into a window of our house. Praise. The sound thunders through the house body hurdles into glass. A red-tailed hawk sits stunned on moss-covered stones, one wing awkwardly held, its ivory breast feathers marked with cocoa and caramel. Praise lightened air, the scent of Tuesday's rain, the splutter of a city bus, a fire engine's wail. The hawk's eyes blink, head swivels, I wonder if it wonders how something resembling air and sky can be solid. Perhaps this is a sign, some divine message, a momentary encounter with this creature of sky and air. The hawk and I stare at each other through the window, its eyes on mine, body regal, fierce. Call this moment gift on a day of quiet sun when I am sick with sadness, missing the curved space of my mother. Praise slate roofs and weathered bricks, the taste of bitter coffee, the cemetery's quiet curves. 
A stretch of wings, it lifts up, flies away over houses and trees into the blue. Praise winter's cold stars, honey on the tongue, this weeping world still spinning. So we got to talk about on Thursday, October 7th. In the year of 2021, because the internet's forever, so we have to so far. (laughs) Virtually through Whitewell is the official book launch reading, which I will have the link to that uh, on the the post on the podcast website. Do you want to say anything about the book launch? Um, uh, It's through White Whale Bookstore, which I'm thrilled with. And um, I am reading with three other astounding women poets, uh, Pittsburgh poets, um, Emily Monslate, Jen Ashburn, and Angel Ellis. So we're all really excited. We wish we could all be together in person, but we'll be together in the in the ether of Zoom. <laughs> in the ether of Zoom, and I'll be there too. Um, so you can get the book through finishinglinepress.com, which is a very easy URL, but I'll have the link. And of course, the giant Borg book retailer <laughs> that's got to get that guy to Mars because, you know. Right, right. Can't die on Earth. <laughs> and so now it's time for the bottom five. A series of questions not related to our main topic that are of a surrealistic and or philosophical nature, if you're ready. I'm as ready as I can possibly be. (laughs) All right. Question one. It's the same question everybody gets the first time. Reincarnation is real. And you had to come back as an infectious disease or illness. What kind of disease or illness would you be? Oh, golly. Um, Wow. An infectious disease or illness, a single cell, something, something, something. I think uh, only because I have a little scar in my forehead, I'm just going to come back as chicken pox. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. That's yeah. Quality. And you know, chicken pox gets that sequel called Shingles. So it does. Thank yes. God there's a shot for that. Yes. <laughs> so I have a friend who's working through that right now. Two. If you had to choose, would you welcome the total elimination of day or night? Oh, night. Night? Yeah. You're I mean, a day person. I, I am. I like I like daylight. Yeah. All right. Question three. So this isn't so bad. We're, we're already almost halfway through. Although I do like night because at night I feel much more like I'm allowed to, to sip a little bourbon. So I'd okay. probably have to give that up. Okay. <laughs> no day bourbon. <laughs> Question three, name a film world you would like to visit or live in permanently. Wait, I'm sorry, name a what? A film world you would like to visit or live in permanently. Like if you could gumby your way into a DVD box and live in a film world. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, wow. That's a toughie. I, I, wow. I think... Only because I love the movie so much um, and everyone was singing at the end, I'd have to go into Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, that's a lovely one. Yes. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be living in some Italian castle somewhere and singing and dancing and eating grapes all day. Yes. Now, so that, that's the Kenneth Branagh. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. With the great bathing scene at the beginning. And yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Emma Thompson, like who wouldn't want to hang out with them? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Question four. Is there anything in your home that you're afraid of? (laughs) In my home. Is it a table saw in the basement or? Well, actually, I was thinking some of the tools my husband has. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of them and I don't want to do anything with them. That, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> See, we're almost through us. So question uh, five. Right. Question five. We were living in a dystopian future. And the only books to survive would be those made bound in human skin. Oh. <laughs> would you? And what book would you donate your skin for with the full knowledge that the Bible, Quran, and complete works of Shakespeare have already been claimed? Okay. Well, I don't want to be any of those anyway. Oh, gosh. 
Wow, this is very, very difficult. What book would I want to donate? Well, it would have to be a book of poetry. Now, hmm. I, okay. I, I, and I, I'm going to say this because I just read the book recently and I really loved it and she's a phenomenal writer. So um, I think I, I donate myself to Ellen Bass's book, Indigo, which mm. is a fabulous book of poetry and everyone should read it. All right. We get a recommendation. <laughs> yeah. And on that happy note, I think that's about it. Wonderful. Our next episode will eventually happen and it will be about something. Our homepage where you can find new and old episodes is going to die podcast.com. We're also on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google play podcast, Stitcher, tune in podcast addict, Mixcloud, And now the audible Amazon podcast thing. We're just on all the services. I think um, follow us on Twitter at going to die podcast. And we're all going to die is on Facebook. Thank you to our guest, Valerie Backrack. Thank you so much Thank again. You. That Whitewell reading, a virtual reading, so it doesn't matter where you are, is Thursday, October 7th at, actually, what time is, did we mention the time? 7 p.m. 7 p.m., Thursday, October 7th, 2021, through the Whitewell Books website, you can get the Eventbrite link. Get the book through finishinglinepress.com. Thank you so much, and thank you to Andrew Fox for our lovely theme music. Later, everyone. Thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it. You're quite welcome.